This is Stanford's Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law podcast. We are studying why governments fail. We are going to talk about economic and political development at home and around the world. Today you are listening to... I'm Ray Diamond. I'm a senior fellow at the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. And we are uh, very, very deeply grateful uh, to have here... Uh, Maina Kiai, uh, who is a long time widely admired, not only in Kenya, but internationally, uh, human rights, rule of law, good governance, and democracy advocate in Kenya and beyond, and who is coming off uh, very recently, uh, having served for five years, was it five years? Six. As, uh, for six? Six, yeah. Six years as the United Nations uh, Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Assembly and Freedom of Association. I'm uh, very proud to say that Mina is also a member of the alumni of our Draper Hills Summer Fellows Program. Welcome to the CDDRL's Democracy World. We're going to talk about a very important event, uh, the Kenyan elections. Uh, of um, last year, uh, which returned to power, uh, the son of the uh, founding president of Kenya, uh, in this case Uhuru Kenyatta, in another in a succession of very bitterly divided, very polarized, uh, and very controversial elections in Kenya. So I'm going to begin, Mina, by asking you why Kenyan elections are so bitter and so polarized, and why uh, at the end of 2007 it really resulted in a near catastrophe of violence, uh, and why did we have um, a result in uh, uh, 2017 in which uh, the outcome of the election was uh, first overturned by the Kenyan uh, Supreme Court and then resulted in a second round uh, in which the incumbent president, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta, was elected, I think, with 98% of the vote in obviously uh, an election that was boycotted by the opposition. So help us understand the background to all of this. Thank you very much, Larry, and thank you all for coming for this for this event. I think I'm I'm really glad to see there's so much interest in, in Kenya. It's a, I think this is a good sign for for us because we sometimes we feel we are all alone out there trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. Um, I, I think you know, and like many other parts of, of Africa, elections are, are are the vehicle to towards development and the vehicle towards inclusion in the state. Uh, we still, despite all the successes Africa has made in terms of constitutional reform, perhaps economic development, the presidency or the person holding power is, is a very powerful position. It's not, it, there are very few restraints. So once you get into power, then you can affect millions and millions of people in one way or the other. So the politics of patronage is still very, very significant. So everybody wants to get there. In Kenya, because of our ethnic divisions and because we do politics via ethnicity, 
it's also a question of inclusion and getting to power means that your community has a chance to, to be included. It's not that everybody in the community ends up being wealthy afterwards, but there's a sense of pride that people have developed over time about their son being being the president or their son being in power and other people are then also appointed to to prime positions in government and that trickles down in very many ways so so it's patronage it's also a sense of inclusion and or exclusion and uh, and that that makes that makes it very very bitter we have a problem and that is the fact that that our election system is a winner take all system first past the post in divided societies, there's nothing as bad as that system because it means that even if you get 49% of the vote, you are completely excluded from everything. And the person who wins or gets 51 then can do whatever they feel like and they think that the majority, they have this thing, the majority rules and the, and the minority talks or something like that. So it's a funny approach that we have to it. So all those things make it difficult. Now, the other thing that makes it hard in Kenya is that since independence, we have only had, we have now got three presidents from one ethnic group, and then is one other from a different ethnic group. So Daniel Moy, who ruled for 24 years, ruled, was the only non-Kikuyu who has, who has ruled Kenya. Everybody else has been Kikuyu, Jomo Kenyatta, Moi Kibaki, and Uhuru Kenyatta. The Kikuyus make up about 22% of the population. So it's not an overwhelming majority that can then say we are, we have the, we, we can run over everybody else in this way. So that, and then the history of, of, of election theft, which I'm sure Larry, you know, all over, all over Africa is a common thing. I think, um, Autocrats learned that rather than, than, than being the president for life without elections, you can always manipulate the election and keep staying there and get you get some sort of legitimacy by having elections. You invite Carter Center, you invite the Commonwealth Observer Mission, and you invite NDI, and they all come and say, well, you know, as it stands, and because they come the day before and then they leave after, they don't understand necessarily the whole weight of how the stealing is done right through, then they say it's fine. So that's why there, there was, there's been that much, there's that much tension and that much expectation. We generally come out to vote in the presidential election about between 80 and 85% turnout, which as you can see is high. I mean, the US election had last time had about 53% turnout. Ours is routinely people come out because it means so much. And that's where it, it goes. So, the, so in 2007, the reason we had violence in 2008 is that 2002 is the only one election that Kenya has had that's not been contested, that everybody agrees was, was fair and, and open. So we got into a habit. We felt we had started a trend of fair elections. Then 2007 happens, and it is absolutely clear it has been stolen. So you have Odinga, the same Raila Odinga who's been running, who ran in 2017, in the lead by more than a million votes, then they silence and, and the media is told to keep quiet. No, is no announcement. The next time we see the results coming out, Odinga is behind, Kibaki has overtaken him by a million votes. And we are thinking, whatever happened here? So it was, it was a blatant theft and was done so blatantly that everybody got very annoyed by how it was done. And that then, of course, and I think, and I think, and Kibaki did not have legitimacy. In fact, Odinga's, Odinga's agreement to go into coalition actually gave Kibaki's Kibaki legitimacy to run the last two the last five the last term of his of, of his of, of his of his uh, tenure so that's where it goes at and so there's been a, a sense and and why the 2017 election was so shocking in terms of the result that came up is that Odinga is very good at 
crafting coalitions. I mean, even a 2002 election, which brought Kibaki to, uh, to power, Odinga crafted that coalition of bringing everybody together. And it was, Odinga, it was then Kibaki versus Kenyatta, two Kikuyu. So, so there was not much ethnic. So Kenyatta's support base was purely Kalenjin, Moy's, Moy's support base, while Odinga and Kibaki had everybody else in the country. So the big, big, the gap was very significant. This time, Odinga then marshaled every other community except the Kikuyu and the Kalenjin, who the Kalenjin about 18%. So, so together, they make about 38 38, 38%, 40% of the population. So it just did not seem likely, when you look at all the votes as they could be, that there's no way Kenyatta would have won without stealing. Now, there are, of course, there are communities that, that vote in a divide, that, that split their votes, if you wish. But generally, you can always tell where the votes are. So the Kikuyu vote to the last person for Kenyatta, to the, everybody. The Kalenjin well, vote. Not to the last well, person. Maybe, okay. To the, to the almost last person. Maybe five or six of people don't vote for Kenyatta among the Kikuyu. The Kalenjin, the same thing. Um, vote for Kenyatta. But everybody else, the Luya, which is the second largest group at about at about 20%, the, the Kamba, which is around 17%, the Luya, which is about 16%, all vote for Odinga because they came up in a coalition. Then you have the coast, which is mostly populated by the Muslim community, which is very, very anti-Kikuyu, then also vote for Odinga. You have the Maasai voting 50-50. You have Kisi, which is in Western Kenya, voting 60-40 for Odinga. So when you add it, it just doesn't seem to make sense at all. And that's where some of the, the whole, the whole, the whole uh, crisis comes up. So when the Supreme, when, when now the election is declared, there's anger. Odinga first says he's not going to go to Supreme Court because he doesn't think he's going to get a fair hearing. Eventually he does go. And to everybody's surprise, the court, the court rules to annul the, the, the result. The basis of that, of, of that, of that decision was a court-ordered scrutiny that, that, that it ordered to, it ordered, you know, look, to look at forms. This election last time was done, you know, it's not done electronically. We vote, we, we go and do the paperwork and it's sent, sent in. But the returning officers, the officials, are then supposed to key in the figures into an electronic system that then sent to, by computer. But the forms are also very important. And Kenyan losses, the forms are the final arbiter. So they're then supposed to fill forms that are signed by all the agents and everybody. And then those forms are then sent to Nairobi. When it did the scrutiny, it ordered that the servers the election commission servers must be open to scrutiny to allow everybody to look at. The election commission just basically ignored that order and refused to let us see because that's where some of, we think some of the stealing was happening to come to the result that they came through. It just refused to open them. But the forms were delivered and that this is where now the, 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 the issues of, of, of concern came up because the, the forms are, are official forms that, which have watermarks. So you can, in terms of security watermarks, they have got serial numbers. And they found that quite a few of the constituency forms did not have those watermarks, did not have the serial numbers. So it led people, then you question, where do the forms come from? Each, each returning officer in the constituency had one form. So where are these other duplicate coming from? So that begins to raise concern about, about that issue. All in all, I think so far, and people have been trying to get the figures and stuff, but I don't think anybody can be sure who actually won that election in August 2017. No one can tell. It uh, for sure, but so even so, I've been kind of surprised that there's been a lot of 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 um, of, 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 of of people uh, analysts saying that they think Kenyatta won a plurality, if not a majority, of votes, and I can't see how they're making that decision. If they're using the election body's figures, then those have been challenged in the court, and the court had a different view of it. So it's not quite clear where it's coming from. But in our view, as 
as observers, as Kenyans who know how we vote, it just didn't seem to make sense. That's a long, long story about the elections. It was a long but necessary story. It was an excellent background. Um, so let me just uh, ask you a question about zero sum, yes. winner take all. Um, <clears throat> because uh, Kenya is a presidential system. Right. So whoever wins the most votes uh, wins the election. But it's now a system in which power has been devolved Correct. to different levels. So there is a, a respect in which it's no longer winner take all. There are regional governments uh, and assemblies that it has been argued have some power and resources. Now I do want you to know and want everyone else to know that we're discussing this election in the presence of people who've had to deliver a free and fair election in Nigeria. We have a delegation from the Independent National Electoral Commission, INEC, with mm -hmm. us today. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think they would back me up in saying that one of the things that has gotten Nigerian democracy through difficult times and kept the polarization from boiling over to impossible levels, that is, it is a federal system. Mm -hmm. If you lose power at the center, at least, you know, uh, an opposition party may control a number of governorships and local governments and so on and so forth. So how much of a difference has devolution of power made in kind of relieving some of the stress and pressure? Well, it's been tremendous. I think without devolution, we'd, have, we'd be fighting now, for, for sure. Um, we'll be violently fighting. There's no doubt in my mind. But our devolution is 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 a little less concrete as you would like it. The constitution gives gives the the counties what we call counties or your states, um, fifteen percent resources from the central from the central kitty. Now um, the the opposition and the governors have been trying to raise that to at least forty five percent under the constitution. Kenyatta and his team have been refusing, saying we'll give you forty percent when we feel like. So there's a lot of there's a lot of animosity around that because it is the center of, of all the work. Devolution has worked and is working and people really like it. But we have also learned in the five years of Kenyatta and Ruto how powerful the presidency remains still. And the presidency is still able to hire a lot of people, is able to force cases against governors it doesn't like and take them to court, is able to manipulate the system to get them uh, to get them grilled by the Senate. There's so many little, little things that, that the central government retains power of. Now, the devolved system doesn't, uh, has only given, uh, does, doesn't give all the functions, doesn't devolve all the functions to the counties, to the, to the devolved uh, level. So a number of them are still maintained by central government. Health, has, health is supposed to be devolved to the local level. The state has been refusing to devolve it. They say they're not ready. Uh, they do not, they, they hold back monies that are supposed to be sent to the counties until, until governors make so much noise that they then get released. So there's a lot of nuances around it. But, I can, but I'm almost certain that, and, and if you look back at 2007, there, were no, there was no devolved government. So it was to totally at the center. So definitely it's, it's helped. It could do better, but I think everybody has found out how powerful. And, and to be honest, I think the fact that both Kenyatta and Ruto use the presidency so effectively to basically kill off uh, or, or, or marginalize the International Criminal Court is not lost on, on, on people in Kenya. They used it so effectively to campaign and get, the, and get the, first of all, the African Union, but most of the world eventually, to, to back off 
and let them be as, as you know. And one of the things that that showed is that it's very difficult to prosecute a sitting president. It's very, very difficult. They can use the powers of the state, use the, all the resources there to be able to get away with it. So it, the presidency remains powerful, very, very powerful. And, and they use it. And also within the context of Kenya in terms of corruption. Uh, there is corruption of the devolved in the counties. There's been devolved corruption, but the bulk of the corruption in the country remains at the central level. And we now have moved away from take, getting loans from IMF, and we now do this bonds in Europe and all these uh, bonds which are auctioned off or, or bought. But you know the the, fir the first one we did eventually was supposed to be for $2.5 billion. And what we do know for a fact is, is that $1.5 billion was received. $1 billion just disappeared. And still, we still haven't found out where it's at. So it's what, that kind of, those kinds of resources at the central level then make, make it difficult. So when the central bank, or the, the, the government, the treasury was asked about that $1 billion, they released some papers and said this is where the money came from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. They, so there's a trail of papers. And then they redact where, where it goes to. So we're asking if it's coming to Kenyan central bank, surely they shouldn't be hiding the account number of the central bank, but they redacted. So we don't know whether it went to a personal account or where it went. So those, those questions about corruption and and because corruption is the engine for of, of, of the political system, it keeps politicians loyal, you buy them off, you fund their campaigns, you do all these things. Corruption is a really important part of the political processes in the country. And so the, and that, and that is, goes either way on both sides of the, of the equation. They're, everybody wants it. So, And campaigns and elections in Kenya are very, very, very expensive, really expensive, unbelievably so, you know, especially for countries as, as poor as we have. So, Mino, what happens now? You have an opposition that is that boycotted the election, uh, rejects the legitimacy of the second election that uh, finally uh, returned uh, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta to power for another uh, five years. Uh, Raila Odinga has taken a kind of symbolic oath of office, uh, claiming to be president. And the country is kind of twisting in the wind of uh, uncertain political legitimacy, mm -hmm. deep grievance and political division. Uh, what happens now? Well, you know, you know we, will, um, we, are, we are probably going to go into a crisis. And, and maybe sometimes a crisis is good because everybody believes that there needs to be some discussions between Kenyatta and Odinga and plus civil society at the table. But Kenyatta won't do it unless he's pushed to, into that corner. So, so far, it isn't happening. So there's, I think what, what the opposition is trying to do is force, is force him to the table uh, without him controlling the levers of that negotiations and that dialogue. That's their, that's their game plan. But, uh, you know, it's, it's also interesting in the second election in, in October, which was boycotted by Odinga, that, uh, you know, the, the election commission says 38%, it was a 38% turnout. Uh, no one doubts 98% for Kenyatta, by the way. That figure is no one doubts at all because I think only his people went out to vote. Mm -hmm. But what is doubtful is a 38% because they, there were all these television shots really from the moment this, the polls opened right until the, the evening. And it could not be more than 20% turnout at all. So again, there's one of those things where figures are being thrown out. We're seeing figures coming from the election body, and then they change, then they change and go upwards, and they come down again. So you almost feel that they are manipulating the system. And I think I think one of the differences, and where we, we a lot of us look at INEC in, in Nigeria positively, is the fact that finally there was an election that happened well. 
but also because in, in, 2015. in 2015, and then also the fact that the, the INEC seems to change every after one election. We have so much mistrust of our election body that that is so much that it almost it almost requires a constant change. So at least at some point you can get it right. Other times you get it wrong. You know. But as it is defined, people have stay there for 10, 15 years. They are going to mess you up. And remember as well that that after the first election, there was a commissioner who who fled the country and came and came back to the U.S. Because she said there's, there's no way they can deliver a fair election. So all those things tell you a lot of things that they they, are, they knew within the election body that there was so much there was so much uh, um, there, there, it was so much mess there. Remember again, the person in charge of the IT system was murdered five days before the election, and that like that murder has never been resolved. So all those things tie up to that confusion. Now, next is so one of the things that I think all of us are asking about is is how do we then how do we reform this election system so that at least, at least it's fairer? There is a lot more talk now about revisiting the constitution which was passed in 2010 to try and, to try and reduce that, that winner-take-all uh, approach at the central uh, level, uh, to try and also go, move away from zero-sum game, and then reform the election body in a manner that we can at least have some modicum of faith in it, it's and it's one you know it's one of those things in Kenya that you've got about fifty percent of the population supporting the election commission, another fifty percent not supporting it, and you can't really conduct an election in that in that form without making somebody unhappy. So I think there's got to be some way in which we make this system work, and I don't think anybody has the answers yet. People are trying to think through that, but I expect well, that the next few years will be very tense in the country. So let's talk about each of those. First of all, the winner-take-all aspect. What reforms are people talking about? Is there talk about moving to a parliamentary system, or what would be the option there? You know, in, in, when when we were crafting our our constitution in the between 2000 and and uh, and when 2000 and yeah, 2002 until 2005, the the consensus was that we wanted we needed to move to a parliamentary system. That was the consensus, and the the first draft of the what we call the committee of experts was saying we we're going to have a parliamentary system, proportional representation, all these things. It was then submitted through parliamentarians, and they. And they, they then decided to take, because Odinga was very much supportive of the parliamentary system, they thought, and this was Kibaki's side, they decided they're going to try and move back to a, pres to a presidential system and say, let's go there. And thinking they're going to force Odinga to oppose the constitution, the draft. But he surprised everybody and said, I'm going to support it. So that just changed the equation and, and, and dynamic very desperately. But the original sentiments of Kenyans that we wanted to go to a parliamentary system, I think there's been, a, there's been some studies showing how, how vulnerable and how fragile presidential systems are. And it's perhaps this country is the one that's taught the world about presidential systems. And it only seems to work here. And I'm not sure it's working here either. But um, if you look at Latin America, there's a, the, the presidential system keeps failing and there's con constitution after constitution being passed, coup after coup. It's a very fragile um, and, uh, and, and unstable system. I think the, the more divided you are, the better you have, the better it is then to find a system that finds a way to incorporate as many people into that system as possible. Better you inside, you negotiate, you compromise, you'll get something that makes sense than having a system where it's a winner take all. So that is, is, is a possibility. Now, I, whether it will happen or not, no one quite knows because, because um, it's a lot of it, a lot of the cards are being held by Kenyatta right now and whether and how he wants to move, how he wants to be remembered. Um, so far, his inclination is to be as, to be as rough as he can possibly be. 
we had a situation for the first time, I think, in the history of any country where a Kenyan was deported out of Kenya into Canada. Um, a person, a Kenyan born in Kenya with Kenyan passport and everything was deported. It's never happened anywhere else. He has, he has dual nationality, but that's never happened anywhere else as far as I can remember. There's been pressure on the media or to an unclosing down of the media. People's passports are being cancelled. Again, even though the constitution says you have a right to a passport, they're cancelling them because you're oppositional. So there's a whole sense of, of impending doom about to happen and happening. And I think that Kenyatta is playing, playing a very hard line approach. It, you know, it might work to silence people or it may backfire. Who knows? But I think that whatever the case, and, and my view around these things always is that the longer we take before we start talking, the harder it is for us to compromise. And the more, the more fixed people get in their positions as opposed to being, to being reasonable and saying, what can we accept? And so he doesn't, I don't think he, I mean, if, if he's in his second term, and last term, he doesn't lose anything himself. Uh, if and also protects the, the Kikuyu, if because it's his last term, there's no obvious Kikuyu leader emerging. So him finding a system that protects everybody also protects the Kikuyu in a in a significant way. But that's not happening. So we are all looking. Uh, a number of us are kind of worried that what we just saw in China with with President Xi. And what uh, Trump has praised uh, with no, with uh, with a with a plum might be coming soon for us, and and we've seen that within that region of East Africa that they're they're moving away from they're trying to remove term limits. So that's a possibility, and if that happens, we're in for real real trouble in in in, in Kenya. What would it take to amend the constitution? What is the threshold so that he could lift term limits? It will be sixty-five percent of the population of, of, of parliament. Of parliament. Sixty-five to two, two thirds. He doesn't. Why well, he's he doesn't have it? But if but you know sometimes you just use force on these things and get it done. You 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 scare people sufficiently that you can then move that process. It's it is not so much as and it's a whole process that begins with people you know and buying off leaders in different places. If he bought off. If he bought off leaders and using both force and um, both force and uh, and bribery and, and patronage, it is doable. I mean, our, our 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 members of uh, our MPs are not very expensive. You know, you know they're very expensive. Five thousand dollars will get them. Will get your vote. So, isn't that high? Our Nigerian friends had an experience with this, and they almost succeeded. O yeah. Passenger, but fortunately, they almost succeeded. If you remember, it was close. Yes, he yes. was, but fortunately he failed. You said, uh, you referred to the need for international pressure or for some kind of mobilization of pressure on President Kenyatta and his administration uh, to induce bargaining, flexibility, compromise, and kind of to steer away from a maximizing of advantages mm -hmm. here. Give a scenario for what could happen or what you'd like to see from external actors? Well, you know, the, the, I think the international media has been playing a pretty solid role right now, a pretty, pretty good role. If you read New York Times, Washington Post, they've been reporting quite accurately where it wants to go. The problem has been, you know, of course, with, with, with Trump in office here, yeah, it's a different equation than it used to be. I think the, the problem is that the, the diplomatic community, the Western diplomatic community in Nairobi has ganged up and is with Kenyatta, which has never happened before. And in fact, I remember it's been surprising that they've been talking about travel bans against Odinga because he decided to exercise his right 
of expression and be sworn in. You know, it didn't break anybody's law. Uh, whether you may, we don't have to like what he did, but it's been his right to be sworn in. I mean, I can be sworn in here. It doesn't mean anything. You know, it's my right if I want to be. But then when you then start saying, we'll, we'll put a travel ban because we think it's bad, the, the, ambassador, the American ambassador is playing a pretty dangerous uh, role, I think, at this point, where he's asking, he's, he's even, I've never seen this before, and I've worked in this area for a long time, where he's basically trying, to, he's, he's insisting that Odinga must recognize Kenyatta. Which is again is you know so Dinka's choice if he wants to or doesn't want to you know what does it mean? The Dinka will have to talk to Kenyatta anyway. If they, any negotiations cannot be without Kenyatta, and you can't have negotiations without Odinga either. So this is this that's the reality of the game, whether we like them or we don't like them. So trying to insist that you must recognize somebody is I think not within his ambit, and 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 Americans with the First Amendment, uh, with your Bible, the First Amendment Bible, should be the first to tell us that is your right. You know, let's now move to the real, the real issue. So there's a whole sense of support, and I think that's been a bit, a bit unnerving because we we have always seen the Americans, the Germans, the, the British not so much, the Americans, Germans, the Scandinavians being quite clear around around rights yeah, and values even if it's 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 in the talking rather than in reality but but uh, the brits don't even talk it or nor do they practice it but uh, they're very very clear what their what their interests are but this is the first time now where the americans are playing the game like the british and that's been very scary for us to see very very scary uh, you mentioned uh, electoral administration reforms. Uh, these might be institutional. They might also be technical. What is on the agenda of civil society there? Well, the, I think I th what we're looking at for one is, is a lot more transparency than we've been seeing from the electoral body. A lot more. And, and have that, not, you know, you know I, I think there's somebody who told me that I think the, the elect Kenyan election body is probably one of the few that does not have open meetings uh, when the commission meets. They just meet in secret and then they come and report it if they do. I think a lot more transparency about how decisions are made, where they are going to. We see how the procurement is done. There's been some staff there who have been there for so long. So it's not just the commissioners, but also staff who have been there for so long and we think are the architects of a lot of the manipulation that goes on. So sometimes just removing them and rotating them. But to be honest, I mean, there's, there's, there's some debate going around whether we want an independent election commission or we want a balanced election commission. Uh, because the 2002 election was conducted by a balanced election commission, meaning that it was, a, it was each of the parties selected members to the commission, so they balanced each other out. Is that a better thing, or, is, or do you have people who are pretending to be independent but are not independent? That's so some, some of that debate is going on. We don't know. I mean, I think we have to figure out, at least for me, I think I like the idea of do one election and get out. One election and get out. So if you make a mistake, you go away and we let the next group come and maybe they'll do it right, you know. At some point, you get it right. And hopefully, once it's gotten right, then it can be continued. You can continue getting it right. So that's what we don't have yet. So we had one election, and then it's been downhill since. So, you know, it's it's quite. I mean, the Kenyan election system is quite sophisticated. They do. A, they have a lot of gadgets around. You know, we have IFES inside inside the election body, which doesn't tell anybody what they're doing inside there. So we try and get IFES to tell us what is their technical you advice. Explain who IFES is. IFES is the is an American uh, American funded uh, group, international federal foundation of electro for, systems for electro systems. So it's part of the NDI. National Democratic Institute, IRI, 
consortium, if you wish, and they do technical advice to, to, to election bodies. And they come up every single time and come in and get embedded in the election commission. And, and they, they, and I've had, we've, a lot of us have had this debate with them that their duty should not only be to the election commission, their duty should be to us as voters rather than to just the body. But they see their job as only reporting to the election commission, giving advice, helping them with technical stuff, and then they leave it there. So we would like them if they, if, to understand, I think this is a, probably the broader issue, that the, that elections are not owned by the election body. They are owned by the people of Kenya. And our constitution is quite strong on stuff about public ownership of these kinds of things. But they won't do it because they use, they use the contract laws. And they think that if they end up, they think that if they start talking and relating with Kenyans, they will lose their, their, their inside track with many of the election bodies in the world. So you begin to realize. So I keep asking them, so if you give advice and it's not taken, why are you inside there then? You know, what are you doing? If your advice is being rejected constantly, what the heck are you doing inside there? What, why do you want to be in there? And then you realize, of course, it's the funding aspect and, and, and institutional survival more than anything else, which is a bit of a, a sad thing. Does uh, Kenyan civil society have a strategy here? <laughs> Does it have uh, a coalition that can carry forward a reform agenda? Uh, yes, I mean, but it's, 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 it's I, think, I think people were very affected by last year. I think there's a lot of burnout to be honest. I think there's also different groups thinking different strategies. Uh, there, there has been some meetings in the last few weeks, people coming together and thinking about how they can approach it. Uh, it is, it is, it's, the terrain is different from how it was before because uh, traditionally civil society has provided the ideas and then brought on partners from the religious sector, from political parties to, uh, to come and join in pushing that agenda. Now, the, any agenda that's, that's there has been taken and owned by, by political parties. So it's making things a bit, a bit murky. But I think that it will happen. I think, I think civil, society, civil society has to do something or it will be marginalized entirely. And I think beyond, beyond monitoring elections, beyond press statements, this must, it must do something. So one, one of the, and that's suppose one of the things going on across the world where civil society is trying to find its feet in this different, different and changed world. What do you do and how do you do things differently so you'll be able to have an impact? And I think that that discussion is ongoing. How do we, how do we link better to, to the communities that we, that, 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 that we work with and we serve? than we're doing so. So it's not just an elite group of people in Nairobi speaking and, and moving things. Quite professionally, quite good at it. But we're also working backwards. We're also going back to the, to the paperwork and the documents that came up in, in, in August last year, and we're trying to compile what we think really happened. So it's, hopefully it will be the, the, um, the, the main text that will describe what happened. We've got a few really good people working on it and i think that will be great if it happens because i think these are these are serious these are serious um, uh, researchers and who are working at it and trying to bring it together it won't be done till about you not know, till after the summer because it's a long tedious work, piece of work where you're looking at the 40,000 polling stations that and then that the forms that lead into the 290 constituencies and that that whole looking through that and making sure it's correct and is is tough we would love to have access to the servers, but uh, the election body still refuses to, to, show, to, to share those for whatever reasons. It opened up the servers, by the way, for the October, like after the October, it says, yes, October, here, you can see the servers, but August, no. You can no. see the 98%. Yes, you can see 98%, but you can't see the ones in, in August, which is interesting. Thank you for listening. 
This podcast is produced by Stanford's Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. Feel free to use it in the classrooms and for other educational purposes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Medium.